This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Good morning. Grace be with you. This is one of the Apostle Paul's key words throughout his epistles, his letters to the early church. If you look at any of his books, um, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, not Hebrews, (laughs) that one's disputed, Galatians, Ephesians, Thessalonians, he always begins his letter or he ends his letter with grace be with you. It's a key thought. He frequently uses it in both his openings and his closings. And this week, our lesson was entitled, Unexplainable Grace. And I want you to keep that in mind this morning as we walk through the passage. And let's start, I'm going to start this morning with a brief review of the Jerusalem Council, which occurred in chapter 15. And it sets up this week's content. So a dispute arose in, um, back in the early church where some Judeans, some Jewish believers, were teaching Gentile believers that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. The teaching was controversial enough that it escalated, and Paul and Barnabas decided to head over to Jerusalem, where the main church was, and talk talk the situation over with the leaders there to get a final decision on it. Now, to understand why the Judeans were teaching this, we need to recognize that for them... Circumcision was a rite which had important ethical meaning. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 11, God had instructed Abraham to circumcise every male in his household, including servants, and this custom was performed on the eighth day after a child was born. It served as a sign of God's covenant relationship with his people, and it signified their responsibility to serve as a holy people whom God had called and set apart as special servants amidst a pagan world. Any male not circumcised at that time was to be cut off from the people and regarded as a covenant breaker. So you see how this was ingrained into their thought, the Jewish believers thought. It was part of their heritage and they had been practicing this rite of circumcision for hundreds of years. The original purpose was good, but over time, the Hebrew people began to take great pride in their circumcision. In fact, it became a badge of their spiritual um, and national superiority. It began to foster a spirit of exclusivism. Instead of a desire to reach out to those around them, as God had intended, they began to circle in and to insulate. Instead of it being a sign that reminded them of their relationship with God and his covenant promise to them, it became a means to their salvation. The Gentiles then became known by the Jews as the uncircumcised, a term of disrespect implying that non-Jewish people were outside the circle of God's love. And these terms, circumcised and uncircumcised, became emotionally charged symbols to the Israels and their Gentile neighbors. Again, they circled in. They began to say, we are circumcised, so we're on the inner circle. We're closer to God, in essence. They're putting themselves, the Jewish believers are putting themselves and God inside a circle. And they're saying, you Gentiles, you're outside that circle because you're not circumcised. 
Can you think of terms that we use today that can be construed as exclusive or a term of disrespect to those who are different than ourselves? Some examples I thought of is how about when we say, oh, she's saved, but he's unsaved. I've heard that several times with the, with the uh, disrespect and the looking down on those who aren't saved. And I'm perhaps more sensitive to it because I'm married to a non-believer. And so when I attend all Christian events, people often assume, because of my involvement in the church, that my husband is a believer too. And sometimes in those conversations, Christians will talk about the unsaved as, as less than. They look down upon them. So I'm sensitive to it as my husband sits there and he knows that they're talking about him. We, use, we can use these terms of um, disrespect with others when we talk about political associations. I'm a Republican, she's a Democrat. I'm an Independent, she's a Republican. We somehow think that our political affiliation is holier than someone else's. We somehow think that one of those political affiliations is closer to God. In reality, God is above and separate from all of them. We can do it generationally. We can look at Gen Xers and Millennials and go, oh, they're just a millennial, they don't care. Or we can look at boomers and go, oh, they're such consumers. Can they just stop ruining our world? We can do it with blue collar, white collar, thinking that our education makes us superior to another person. We can do it with where we come from, whether we live in a big town or a small town. We can say the small town are ignorant. We can call the big town people elite. Any time we start categorizing people and labeling them, we risk creating us-them categories. We risk putting ourselves in an inner circle and others in an outer circle. The Jewish believers felt superior because of their adherence to the laws, and they tended to view their uncircumcised Gentile brothers as unenlightened and inferior. This is the friction that arose in the early church between the two groups and why the Jerusalem Council had to be called to resolve the issue. Well, after much discussion and testimonies and sharing of different viewpoints on both sides, the early church leaders came to a key doctrinal conclusion. They decided that the Gentiles were not under the law. They did not have to be circumcised. They were saved by faith alone. And this agreed with the promises to Israel found in the prophecies of the Old Testament, and it also agreed with what they were seeing, what they were witnessing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the Gentiles. But even today, just like the Jewish believers, I think we often try to add something to our faith because we want to find our worth, our value, apart from God. We'll say, I'm saved by faith alone, but God will love me more if so-and-so. And like the Judeans, like the Jewish believers, we slowly but surely add weight to our shoulders. We place the heavy yoke of unspoken rules and expectation on ourselves and on others attempting to earn God's love. And all of a sudden, we no longer live in the freedom of Christ, but in bondage to rules, to expectations, to unspoken, um, unspoken expectations. I'm saved by faith alone, but God will love me more if. Just take a moment and consider, how would you complete that thought? 
I'm saved by faith alone, but God will love me more if. Perhaps it's if I serve at church on Sunday, or if I have a daily quiet time, God will love me more. If I pray regularly, God will love me more. If I tithe more faithfully, God will love me more. If I'm kind and responsible, God will love me more. If I don't yell at my kids, or my husband, or my neighbor, or my coworker, God will love me more. If I please everyone around me, God will love me more. What are your ifs? Well, during the 16th century, visionary pastors and leaders like Martin Luther King, not Martin Luther King, sorry, Martin Luther, that just rolled off my tongue. (laughs) Visionary leaders like Martin Luther and John Calvin spearheaded a movement that transformed Christianity and eventually led to what is known today as the Protestant Reformation. These pastors and leaders were guided by the conviction that the church of their day had begun to drift away from the essentials of their faith, of their original teachings of Christianity, especially in regard to what it was, um, what, te- what it was teaching about salvation and how people can be forgiven for sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and receive eternal life with God. They came up with what is called the five solas, They're five Latin phrases or slogans to summarize the essentials of Christianity and to reorient Christianity at that time back to the original message of Jesus and back to the original message of the early church. The five solas are sola scriptura, and sola means only. So the Bible alone is our highest authority. Sola fide, we are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Sola gratia, We are saved by the grace of God alone. Solus Christus, Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, our Savior, our King. And soli Deo Gloria, we live for the glory of God alone. As Patsy shared in her teaching a couple weeks ago about the Jerusalem Council, she said, false gospels always tried to add to the gospel of grace alone. False gospels always try to add to the gospel of grace alone. We continually do this. We continually go back and add to our salvation. If I do this, I'm saved by faith alone, but if I do this, God will love me more. The the Jerusalem Council's decision was key as it broke away from the legalism of Judaism and set people free from that heavy burden. And it's key for us today as we recognize we can add nothing to our salvation. We can add nothing. We are saved by grace alone. Sola gratia. God loves us, each and every one of us, just as we are. So that's the setup of the Jerusalem Council. That was the main um, battle that they were, or issue that they were trying to resolve And it's an issue that the church continues to tackle. So after they came to their doctrinal conclusion, they drafted a letter to the Gentiles. And this is where we enter into our text this week. And we start with Acts 15, 22 through 33. And I'm just going to summarize it. You can open your Bibles if you'd like to follow along, but I'll just kind of generally summarize the passage as we go through it today. So their first decision after they came to their conclusion that we are saved by grace alone, sola gratia, 
is then they were deciding, how do we communicate this to the church? How do we communicate this to, the, to our brothers and sisters in Antioch? And they decided to, to ask Judas and Silas, who were two prominent and respected leaders, they asked them to go back to the church in Antioch and share their decision with the believers there. So they sent them and Paul and Barnabas 300 miles away. They sent these four leaders in the church back to the Gentile believers with a written letter. They decided that communication in person, in written, was the best combination to let their brothers and sisters know what they had decided. And in the letter, they stated that the Gentiles no longer do not have to be circumcised, but they did recommend some ground rules to help facilitate unified worship between the Jewish and the Gentile believers. Now, it's clear that those ground rules were not conditions to be saved, but they were to be abided by out of respect for their Jewish brother's culture. The conditions were stay away from food polluted by idols, stay away from sexual immorality, which was a common part of idol worship in that day, and stay away from eating meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood, which was a Levitical law for the Jewish people. These were given for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ, not for the sake of gaining salvation. Now it's interesting, shortly after this decision, after this decision, Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. We do see in chapter 16 that Paul will later advise Timothy to be circumcised. And this might be kind of what we consider hypocritical at first read, but we have to remember the key principle behind these ground rules that are given here and why the circumcision was... We go back to the part that we sometimes need to be willing to make concessions for one another in order to facilitate unity. Erica Wiggenhorn says this on page 65 of the study, and I think she says it very eloquently, that sometimes we need to to be willing to make concessions for one another in order to facilitate unity. So while Timothy was not required by law to be circumcised, he voluntarily does so in order to overcome any barriers to him witnessing because he is born of a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. He does it for the sake of the unity in Christ. And again, that's what the Gentiles, why they agree to these ground rules, is they do it for the sake of unity in Christ. Is there something this morning that God is asking you to surrender for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ? Perhaps there's a grudge you've been carrying around. Perhaps there's a preference you have of how the church should be ran and it's not going your way. Perhaps there's an issue with a friend that you need to let go. Is there a grudge? Is there something that God is asking you to surrender for the sake of unity in the body of Christ? Well, after the letter was read, it said that the Gentiles were greatly encouraged, and Paul and Barnabas stuck around and continued to teach and preach God's word there for a while. Judas and Silas headed home. They went back to Jerusalem. And Paul suggested then to his friend Barnabas that they head back out on the mission field. He said, perhaps we need to go visit some of the churches that we planted 
go back and see some of the places we've been before and encourage the believers. And this is where we go into the next disagreement. It says, but unfortunately, the two disagree sharply. Barnabas wants to take his cousin, John Mark, along, and Paul does not want to take John Mark with them. This reminds me of my little boys when they fight over who's, who's going to come over. One of them wants one friend to come over, and the other will not want the other one. But this is more than that. For whatever reason, as we had learned a few weeks ago, John Mark had left Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, and he returned to Jerusalem. We don't know why he left for sure, but we do know that Paul was upset about it, and he considered it a, dissipate, um, a desertion by John Mark. So at this point, Paul is adamant that Mark will not be going with him on this mission trip. He doesn't want to be deserted again. Barnabas, on the other hand, I love Barnabas. He's always the encourager. He believes in Mark despite what happened, and he wants Mark to go with them. So the two split ways. Now you know this has to be very painful. Anytime a relationship is broken like this, a disagreement in, of, of this magnitude occurs, there, it's painful. These two had a deep friendship. They had traveled on a missionary journey before. Barnabas was the first person to trust Paul and to bring him in to the Jew, Jerusalem leaders to say, hey, this guy's okay, he's safe, we can trust him, he's, he's a partner with the gospel. These two had been through thick and thin on that first missionary journey. They had been beaten, they had been outcast, they had been stoned, they had been through everything together. So here they are at an impasse where they cannot agree, and it says the two split ways. Again, I just want to reference back to Patsy's talk a couple weeks ago because it is something that we need to hold on to, ladies. Is one, she said, peace does not come naturally. And she says, Christians, as Christians, we will not avoid conflict. And then she said, when it comes to serving the Lord, opposition is guaranteed. And most importantly, we have to remember that our enemy is not flesh and blood. Ladies, peace does not come naturally. We will not avoid conflict as Christians. Opposition is guaranteed as we follow Christ. And we have to remember who our enemy is, who our real enemy is. So Barnabas takes Mark and he sells for Cyprus. Paul chooses Silas, and he heads overland into Turkey. The scripture doesn't give all the details, nor does it take sides between this dispute. It just reports that there was a fallout, and the two great missionary giants went their separate ways. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, we do get a glimpse into Paul's relationship later with John Mark in a letter he wrote from prison. And I love it because at this point in his life, Paul is in prison. He's approaching his final years. And one of the key people he wishes to see is actually John Mark. So we see that eventually the relationship is restored. And he not only wants to see John Mark, he's commending him to continue preaching the gospel to the churches that he started. So it's a beautiful picture that there is restoration eventually. 
we get to see that even though Paul may have given up on Mark at that point, God hadn't. And he used Barnabas, the encourager, to take Mark under his wing and invest in him. Barnabas was a discipler. He didn't allow John Mark's mistakes to define him, but he invested in him for the long haul and with great patience. I would not be up here teaching if Barbara File had not determined to invest in me for the long haul. And let me tell you, it had to be with great patience. I've made many mistakes. I've been crippled by fear many times. But she always encouraged me. She always encouraged me to keep stepping out in faith, to keep following God no matter what. And she never gave up on me. And most importantly, she never gave up on God in me. To that, I am grateful. So as Barnabas heads to Cyprus with John Mark, Paul takes Silas and they head overland into Turkey. Their first stop, we're now in Acts chapter 16, their first stop is in Derby, and they head on to Lystra. Here Paul encounters young Timothy, and after hearing what everyone says about him, that he's a fine young man, he invites Timothy to join him and Silas. Now, the Life Application Bible, it notes that Timothy is the first, second-generation Christian mentioned in the New Testament. His mother, Eunice, and grandmother, Lois, had become believers and had faithfully influenced him for the Lord. And although Timothy's father apparently was not a Christian, the faithfulness of Timothy's mother and grandmother influenced him, and he became a disciple. I love that, ladies. It was the mother and the grandmother that faithfully influenced Timothy. At the IF gathering a couple weeks ago, for those of you that weren't there, the focus of the gathering was on discipleship. And in particular, I was excited because the focus was on on the story of Timothy, and we read through the book of Timothy during the weekend together. And so I was excited to come to this part of the study and see that they were talking about Timothy again and talking about discipleship. One of the speakers at the F Gathering, her name was Annie F. Downs, and she broke down in her own words what discipleship meant. And I wanted to take a moment to share what I gleaned from her talk in regards to discipleship. She shared that the first part of discipleship is how you look at someone. She talked about how her own grandma would sit and love to watch her dance. Her grandma would delight in who she was. Another way to say it is the first part of discipling someone is taking time to look at them and say, you matter. I love that because that's what Barnabas did with John Mark. He didn't see the fear, the failure. He looked at John Mark and he said, you matter. I see potential. And Barnabas did that with Paul too. He didn't see a murderer, a killer of Christians. Instead, he saw a changed life a life blinded and struck down by God and forever changed. He saw potential and brought Paul into the fold and taught him how to share the gospel message. And then you see Timothy, young Timothy. You hear that he is a second-generation Christian, that his mother and grandmother invested in him. They didn't see him as an annoying little boy, rambunctious little boy. 
or they didn't see him through the disdain of the next generation. They saw him as someone with potential, someone to pass on their faith to. And then we see Paul seeing Timothy here, and he is excited as he sees a young believer to invest in. The second part of discipleship is to meet them where they are at. Annie Down shared that her grandma always came out to the driveway to greet her. And so she simply asked us the question, who's in your driveway? In other words, who has God placed in your life? When I was first coming to Bible study, about 20 years ago, I was in a small group, and my leader, her name was Helene Zukoski. I would come in here. I wouldn't say a word. I was too shy to speak. I was too scared to speak. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I'd come in here and I'd sit, listen to the lecture, and then we'd go to our small group time. Actually, I think it was reversed back then. We did our small group time first and then lecture. But I'd sit there and I'd be in awe of my small group leader because she loved God's word and she knew it. It was the coolest thing. She knew how passages related. She knew how stories related. She could find things. If, if they said, for God so loved the world, world, she knew to go to John 3.16. I was like, who does that? And how do you do that? And I was too shy to say anything. But afterwards, after each, each small group time, I would just stand there in the room and kind of look at her. And if, one of those weeks, she said, Lindsay, do you want to ask me something? <laughs> And I looked at her and I said, Helene, would you disciple me? Helene was a mom of four young kids. I was just a 20-year-old, no kids, a dink. And she said, sure. And she goes, but the only time I can do it is it probably would be at 6 a.m. on a Thursday morning. So we met for the next two and a half years, every week on a Thursday morning at 6 a.m. at a Starbucks, this young mom got up to meet me and share what she knew about Jesus. Such a beautiful picture. She met me in her driveway. So who's in your driveway? The third part of discipleship is to teach what you know. Discipleship can sound like an intimidating process. We may think we need to be experts or scholars, but she, but this Annie Downs, what she shared was that her grandma simply taught her what she knew. It wasn't anything profound. She just taught her what she knew about Jesus. She didn't know everything, but what she did know, she shared with her. And that's all we need to do. Teach those that are in our driveway what we know. Paul saw Timothy and looked at him, and he said, you matter. He met Timothy in his driveway And then he invited him along to learn what he knew. Erica Wiggenhorn points out that later Paul calls Timothy his true son in the faith. Timothy's legacy started with two devout women, his mom and grandma, and then he grew to become the man to whom Paul entrusted every church he had founded. Isn't that amazing, ladies? Your legacy matters. So I want to ask each of you this morning, who is in your driveway? Is there someone God is calling you to invest in, to share your faith with, to walk with? You don't have to know everything, 
but is there someone God is calling you to intentionally invest in? You don't have to be an expert. You just need to see someone, delight in them, meet them where they're at, and teach them what you know. This is the gospel message. This is how the gospel goes forth. The last segment of scripture, Paul begins, we're told about his missionary journey. And I'll go ahead and read this from the text. It's Acts 16, 4 through 10. And I'm going to read it through the, um, the message, the version of the message. So, as they traveled from town to town, this is Paul and Silas, they presented the simple guidelines that the Jerusalem apostles and leaders had come up with. That turned out to be the most helpful. Day after day, the congregations became stronger in faith and larger in size. They went to Phrygia and then on through the region of Galatia. Their plan was to turn west into Asia province, but the Holy Spirit blocked that route. So they went to Mysia and tried to go north to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not let them go there either. Proceeding on through Mysia, they went down to a a seaport called Troas. That night, Paul had a dream. A Macedonian stood on the far shore and called across the sea, come over to Macedonia and help us. The dream gave Paul his map. We went to work at once, getting things ready to cross over to Macedonia. All the pieces had come together. We knew for sure that God had called us to preach the good news to the Europeans. Do you catch that in verse 10? It switches to we from they to we. At this point, Luke, the author of Acts, joins in to the mission trip. So he's seeing these things firsthand. So this last segment of scripture, Paul continues moving forward on a missionary journey, trusting in the Holy Spirit's guidance. This included long stretches between towns. It included sometimes hitting open doors, sometimes coming up against closed doors. It included a lot of waiting, a lot of conflicts, a lot of new relationships. It it included a lot of discipleship, just conversations about what he knew about Jesus along these long, dusty roads. And the Holy Spirit guided him both to and kept him from. I think it's so important to remember that the Holy Spirit doesn't just open doors, but it also keeps us from areas where we might be trying to go. And this isn't always a pleasant thing when the Holy Spirit closes doors. Often it's painful, and we spend time waiting on a long, dusty road longer than we'd want to. Psalm 32.8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. We are called to a sweet dependency on the Holy Spirit. We are called to allow the Holy Spirit to guide us, guide us both to and keep us from. I have one friend who says the first thing she does each morning is she crawls out of bed, she gets down on her knees on the floor right next to her bed, and she says, God, what would you have me do today? And I thought of her as I read this. It's that sweet dependency on the Holy Spirit, trusting that he will guide and direct each and every step of the day.
Now, in closing, I want to go back to the title of this week's lesson. It was called Unexplainable Grace. Did you see it weaved through each of these stories? I did, and I wanted to share something I wrote after I completed this lesson and I reflected upon it. You see, unexplainable grace is God's yes to us. Unexplainable grace is God's yes to those not like us. It's God's yes despite our quarreling. God's yes despite our sin. It's God's yes through us to others. It's God's yes despite closed doors. It's God's yes amidst the grueling middle. And it's God's yes that never ends. That is unexplainable grace. Let me pray. Father, we just praise you that you are a God that continues to say yes to us and to others that you invade all parts of our life, even the parts we try to hide and to hold, that you desire all of us. We thank you that you do not give up on us and that you send to others who do not give up on us. And you say yes to us despite our sin, despite our fear, despite our quarreling. You pursue us relentlessly and as a result of that Lord our eyes can turn outwards to others and we can say yes to them and we can see them with eyes of grace we can see them not from an earthly standpoint but we can see them in you Father in all that you have planned for them Lord I pray for each woman in this room I pray that she will have eyes to see who you have placed in her driveway, who you would want her to invest in. And I pray that she goes forward with boldness, Lord, to invite that young person, whether it's a granddaughter, a grandson, whether it's a friend, a neighbor, an acquaintance, a coworker, Lord. I pray that you would give her the boldness to embrace that call and to share with that person what she knows. In Jesus' precious name, amen.